Well, good morning. Uh, good morning to you online as well. Um, we are continuing our sermon series, Galatians, Free at Last. And uh, I want to start with a, uh, with a, as I often do, with a story. But this is a, this is a, uh, this is a historical story. It's a true story. Um, so in the, in the mid-1800s, uh, a gentleman by the name of Blondin, B-L-O-N-D-I-N, Blondin, was a tightrope walker, and he was an acrobat. Um, he was famous for crossing a tightrope that was about 1,100 feet long, and it was suspended about 160 feet above Niagara Falls. And he would usually start by crossing uh, with a balance pole, and then he'd set the pole down, and then he'd cross without the pole. Um, he would sometimes cross on stilts or blindfolded. Uh, one time he stopped midway, like halfway across, to cook and eat an omelet. Once he wheeled a wheelbarrow from one side uh, to the other, and then he uh, took a sack of potatoes and put it in the wheelbarrow, and then he, he brought it back to the other side. After he did this, he asked the Duke of Newcastle, he said, do you believe that I could take a man across this tightrope a, in a wheelbarrow? And the Duke said, yes, I do. And then Blondin said, well, hop in. <laughs> but he wouldn't. <laughs> no one else would volunteer either, um, except this one little old woman we stepped, she stepped out from the crowd and she got into the wheelbarrow and Blondin wheeled her all the way across and then he wheeled her all the way back and come to find out uh, this little old woman was Blondin's mother. So now imagine if about halfway across that tightrope his mother said, I don't trust you anymore. I'm going to do the rest myself. Let me down. I'll take it from here. Can you imagine that? She would never make it. So having been carried that far, why would she think that she could get the rest of the way herself? It sounds silly, but that's similar to the situation that Paul's dealing with in today's passage. This is probably one of the greatest misunderstandings of the Christian life. If you've been following along in this series, I hope you understand by now that you are accepted by God based only on what Jesus Christ did on the cross and nothing else. That we are fully justified in our standing before God because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. If we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, when God looks at us, he sees our son, or he sees his son. Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. If we are in Christ, God no longer sees our sin. We are fully justified or made right through faith in Jesus Christ. So in theological terms, this is called justification by faith. That's like the, the $10 word, justification by faith. But justification is only the beginning of the journey. We hope that our journey ends with us being like Christ, holy, 
conformed into the image of Christ himself. But having been justified through faith in Christ, how are we then sanctified? That's another $10 word, meaning how are we made holy? How are we made to conform to the image of Christ himself? And here's how a lot of people respond, and it's the mistake that Paul is confronting in this passage. A lot of us act as if we are saved by grace through faith, but when it comes to becoming more like Christ, it's up to us. It's like we get a ways onto that tightrope, and then we say, thanks for getting me started, Jesus. I'll take it from here. So we're going to see in today's passage that the entire Christian life is based on faith and grace, and none of it is performance. Okay, Paul begins this passage by saying, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? Right? He's saying, essentially, are you completely out of your mind? What in the world are you thinking? He's looking at the Galatians, and he is incredulous. So here's the issue, uh, according to verses 1 through 3. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? What Paul identifies here is actually one of the greatest issues that we face as Christians. When the Galatians first heard the gospel and they became believers, the power of the Holy Spirit was at work in their lives. The Bible teaches that when we give our lives to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, right? The Holy Spirit is God's down payment and his guarantee that he will complete his work. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says, he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. So here's the question. How did you become a Christian and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? The answer is, I became a Christian and I received the Holy Spirit because I heard the gospel message and I believed. So to use the tightrope analogy, you became a Christian by thinking, by not, not by thinking that you could cross over that chasm all by yourself, but by placing your trust in Christ to do what you couldn't do for yourself. Did the Galatians receive the Holy Spirit because they were circumcised or because they kept the works of the law? No. The Holy Spirit never takes up residence in our lives because we've cleaned ourselves up or because we're somehow good enough. No, the Holy Spirit entered our lives when we received, we heard and received the gospel message by faith. We don't become Christians by doing anything to earn God's acceptance. We become Christians when we hear the gospel preached 
And we place our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross at Calvary. So given this, Paul asks, after starting your new lives in the spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? What Paul is saying is this, continue in the Christian life in the same way you started, by grace and not by performance. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27 says, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Now that God has kept this promise and given us the Holy Spirit to live within us and change us from the inside out, it would be foolish to think that we can somehow improve on this through some kind of strategy of self-development. We often don't realize we're doing this, right? Because these values of self-reliance and self-dependence, self-discipline, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, working harder to better ourselves, working harder to better our station in life, these are values that are so prevalent in our culture and we have a hard time seeing it. I would even go so far as to say these values are not biblical. But they are so ingrained in our culture, we have a hard time separating it out. It's like asking a fish, what does water taste like? You ask him that question and he just looks at you funny. So here are two big questions to think about. Is it the Holy Spirit that drew us by his grace into saving faith in Jesus Christ? Yes. And are we to then progress in the Christian life through our own efforts and works and good behaviors? Paul says, absolutely not. The Spirit drew us into saving faith in Jesus and the Spirit will conform us into the likeness of Jesus. John Piper puts it this way. He said, the essence of the Galatian heresy is the teaching that you begin the Christian life by faith and then you grow in the Christian life by works. That is, by drawing on powers in yourself to make your contribution to salvation. One modern form of the heresy is God helps those who help themselves. Faith is the only response to God's word which makes room for the spirit to work in us and through us. Flesh, on the other hand, is the insubordinate, self-determining ego, which in religious people responds to God's word, not with reliance on the spirit, but with reliance on self. It can produce a very rigorous morality, but it nullifies grace and it removes the stumbling block of the cross. So, when confronted with this, the question then is, well, how does it work then? Right? How do I rely on grace to become more like Christ? Should I just, should I just sit here and do nothing and wait for God to change me? Paul's not saying to sit there and do nothing. 
It still takes effort, but it is a grace-driven effort. It's a process of letting go and learning to seek the Holy Spirit, learning to submit to his leading. And the power to change does not come from ourselves. It comes through the Holy Spirit. The New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner says, as Christians, we need to relearn the gospel every day. We are prone to wander, as the old hymn says, and hence we may act as if a spell has been cast over us. The Christian life is a battle to rely on the gospel, and even as Christians, we are inclined to look to ourselves and trust in our own achievements rather than relying solely on the cross of Christ. In our counseling, in our preaching, in our teaching, we must summon people over and over to the cross of Christ and call them to look away from themselves and focus on Christ. We may slowly drift from the gospel just as the Galatians did. The problems Paul addressed in Galatians remind us all that the Christian life cannot be lived on autopilot, that there is a daily struggle to grasp the gospel. So we want to continue the Christian life in the same way we started it, by grace, through faith, and the power of the Holy Spirit. We grow by grace. So one of the biggest mistakes when we read the Bible is this. A lot of good people, well-meaning people, will tell you this. They will say, the Bible is about how to live a good moral life, how to be a good person. If you ask about the stories in the Bible, these people will tell you that they are stories that show us how to be a good person. The Bible becomes a how-to book that gives us examples of people that we should try and be like. Problem with this is it is all wrong. It is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Bible is about. Okay, I'll come back to that in a bit. But first this. Maybe you remember that little phrase in the Bible where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? If we're both justified and we are sanctified by grace through faith, why do these verses seem to imply that we're saved by our works? That I somehow need to be serious about working out my salvation. That, that scripture is in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It says this, it says, therefore my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So if you read the verse carefully, you'll see that the second part of the verse is what drives the first part of the verse. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Therefore, it is not you who ultimately works out your salvation, but God who works in you. It means God works in you so that you begin to fulfill yourself in him. He works in you to show you 
that that God-shaped hole that's in your soul, maybe you've tried to fill that hole, like me, with all kinds of other things that never truly satisfied, whether it was success or money or sex or drugs or food or whatever, and you found that none of them truly satisfy. He works in you to want to be in his presence because you realize that it is in his presence that we are changed. We are transformed. We are conformed into the likeness of Christ himself. We are filled and empowered and led and guided and directed by the Holy Spirit. We begin bearing the fruit of the Spirit, right? More love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things start bearing out of us. It's not a prescriptive list. It's not, I need to be more of those things. No, I need to be more with him. And then as I'm with him, he bears that fruit, right? What used to give us pleasure before now becomes unsatisfying. We begin to crave more and more his abiding presence. Sometimes that presence is overwhelming. Sometimes it is intimate. Sometimes it is convicting. Sometimes it is empowering. Sometimes it is like fire. And sometimes it's like a hug. But all the do's and the don'ts and all the rules and the conformity to what we think a Christian should look like pales in comparison to a life that is surrendered and submitted and hungry for the presence of the Lord. The process of sanctification, of becoming more and more holy, more and more like Christ, is not really your work. It is his work. God is at work in you. Our problem is not that we don't try hard enough, it's that we don't want to let go. We don't want, we don't want to let go of control and let God direct our lives. So, there are two boats, two people on two boats. I originally named this sermon Two Roads, I changed it to Two Boats because of this analogy I'm about to give you. So two people on two different boats, a rowboat and a sailboat. The person on the rowboat relies on his own strength to row the, the boat, okay? The person on the sailboat um, has a little trolling motor, which typically uh, maxes out to about five miles an hour typically doesn't use this motor to cover long distances. Rather, he uses it to position the boat where it can catch the wind, the true source of power for the sailboat. The rowboat is powered by the person rowing. The sailboat is powered by the wind. When you row a boat for a while, you grow tired, you grow weary, you only have a certain amount of strength. You can only go so far. But when you're in a sailboat and you position the boat where you can catch the wind, you spend, you spend time opening the sails, catching the wind, 
It's beautiful. Jackie and I have chartered uh, sailboats on a few different vacations that we've been on. Um, one was in Door County, Wisconsin. Another was in Portland, Maine. And uh, a couple times they let me steer. Um, it's wonderful. Like there's no sound of this motor. There's no smell of the exhaust. Um, just the sound of the boat cutting through the water and the wind sometimes flapping the sails. And when you really get going, the boat tilts, right? About a 45 degree angle. And uh, you know, you're kind of sitting there with your feet kind of dangling off the edge. And it's awesome, it's beautiful. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verses six and seven, he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. It's God who makes things grow. It's God through his spirit that takes us to a new destination and we are changed in the process. So what does this look like? Like you're like, okay, but what does that look like specifically? So I want to spend some time comparing the difference between rowboat spiritual growth and sailboat spiritual growth, i.e. works versus grace, okay? And they'll show up on the screen. You also should have a, it in your bulletins there. I wanted you to like walk away with this list so you could like look through it, pray over it, and it could work its way into your heart. All right. So the Christian life, rowboat spiritual growth, um, in, in that, in rowboat spiritual growth, the Christian life is very performance driven. It's rooted in self-effort and behavior modification. Uh, sailboat spiritual growth is, Christian life is centered in a relationship with God from whom we receive what we need for spiritual growth. Bible study. Rowboat Bible study is primarily looking for information and for principles to apply to our lives. Sailboat Bible study is primarily asking God to speak through his word into the depths of our hearts. Prayer. Rowboat prayer is more focused on praying through lists of needs for yourself, for others. That's not bad. We want to do that. We want to intercede on the behalf of others. However, sailboat prayer, in addition to that, is really focused on listening and soaking and abiding. What is God saying? What is he telling us to do? Okay? Holy Spirit's job. In rowboat uh, spiritual growth, the Holy Spirit's job is to give us energy as we try harder. Right? Sailboat uh, spiritual growth, the Holy Spirit's job is to mentor us, to speak into our lives, to give us guidance, direction, healing, and comfort. Growth, rowboat growth, comes from working hard to do the right things. Okay? Sailboat growth is a byproduct of regularly being in God's presence. 
Obedience to Christ. In rowboat spiritual growth, obedience to Christ comes from control. Trying harder to do the right things regardless of what I want or how I feel. Whereas in sailboat spiritual growth, obedience to Christ comes from submitting to the Holy Spirit, letting go, right? Giving him control, where we allow him to change our heart to become more conformed to Christ. Relationship. In rowboat spiritual growth, relationship is primarily knowing about God and what he wants. Sailboat. Relationships is having first-hand knowledge, first-hand experience, intimate knowledge of God. The goal in rowboat, uh, spiritual growth, is to do and say the right things. Okay? It's all focused on the externals. Sailboat goal is to allow the Holy Spirit to replace my current false self, bit by bit, with my future kingdom self the person I will be for the rest of eternity. Okay, repentance. In rowboat spiritual growth, repentance is feeling sorry enough to ask for forgiveness and to promise to try harder. In uh, sailboat spiritual growth, repentance is agreeing with God that in our sin, we're a wreck and we can't go a day without a sustaining presence. Remember that picture I showed you of the wrecked car? few weeks ago, that, that's it, okay? It's like, God, I can't go five minutes without you, right? Okay, being in God's will. In rowboat spiritual growth, being in God's will is being in the right place at the right time, doing the right things that God wants us to do and not doing what he doesn't want us to do, right? I've seen Christians paralyzed like this. They're like, I'm just trying to get it right, God, show me. You know, they're doing everything they can to try to figure that out. In sailboat spiritual growth, being in God's will is living each day in relationship with God and knowing that I'm a work in progress and no matter how messed up I am, he loves me, he never leaves me, and he cares less about what I do than who I am in him. Okay, discipleship. Rowboat discipleship is primarily teaching doctrine and how to live a Christian lifestyle along with efforts to motivate. And then sailboat discipleship, while doctrine is important, discipleship is primarily training people how to listen to and respond to and engage with the Holy Spirit in ways that change us from the inside out. Right? Inner healing, ah, that's like, some, some of you are like, yes, we need that. Others are like, oh, that's like a curse word around here. <laughs> inner healing, uh, in rowboat spirituality, inner healing is glossed over, even looked down upon as too psychological or, too, or unnecessary. Uh, in sailboat spiritual growth, uh, inner healing is an important part of our restoration process because these wounds cause our heart to be malformed. And then that reference there of Peter's restoration in John 21 is literally like, you know, Jesus or Peter denied Jesus three times. And then, you know, in John 21, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Three times, right? It's like this inner healing journey. 
right? It's really cool. I would not be here today as a pastor had I not gone through a process like this. Like my, my childhood, you've heard bits and pieces of it, was like so messed up. There was no way I would be able to offer love to people, be as authentic and transparent as I am with people um, through all the layers of brokenness that I had. I mean, for one, I'll just pick a real light one, but it was a major one. Uh, I had father abandonment issues, right? Parents got divorced when I was six. Um, my mother remarried a man who was alcoholic, abusive. Um, father was in the Navy. He was gone. I saw him maybe once every two, three years. And, uh, you know, God had to heal me of that. And that one in particular was a cool one. A lot of these are like long processes. That one was like, like a miracle. Um, so I was a pastoral intern. I was sitting on a Sunday morning in a youth service where they were, they were worshiping. You know, worship band, and then the, all the teenagers were, were in there, and I'm, and I'm sitting in a chair, like right about there. And I look over across the room, and in my mind's eye, I see Jesus, and he's, and he's holding a baby. And I look at the baby, and it's me. And I hear Jesus say to me, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And like in that moment, I just like started weeping. And it wasn't like pretty weeping, it was like snot everywhere <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> like, and so, so some of these inner healing things like God and his grace heals in the moment. Others, you know, take time. They need, you know, people praying for you, listening, you know, all of this stuff. Some need, you know, professional counseling. But I, I'm telling you, I would not be here had I not received a whole lot, whole lot of healing. And so that's one of the things we will get going here at Life Church is an inner healing ministry. All right, overall, the rowboat spirituality, spiritual growth says uh, we're trying to live up to a standard of behavior found in the Bible. In terms of John 15, where it says, I am the vine, you are the branches, it is attempting to create our own fruit. And in sailboat uh, spirituality, overall, we're trying to engage with the Holy Spirit in ways that allow him to change us from the inside out. In terms of John 15, it is staying connected to the vine so that God can produce that fruit in our lives. Okay? So moving on in verse six, Paul says, um, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what can we learn from Abraham's life? We could focus on all his good works. He left everything behind and he moved where God told him to. He was ready to sacrifice his own son when God asked him to. But was Abraham saved because of his good works? Paul says no. Abraham was saved the same way that we are saved. Grace through faith. And through faith, it was credited to him as righteousness before God. And it's the same with us. The term Paul uses is an accounting term. Uh, it's sometimes translated as credited or reckoned to him. 
So a couple weeks ago, uh, I went down to Kansas City um, with the intent to close on the sale of our house, uh, get my family, and then move, move them back to join me here in Fergus Falls. Uh, but there was a snafu, and we technically were going to have to wait a week uh, to close on the house. And so we did what needed to be done to close on the house here, or close on the house that's in Kansas City here in Fergus Falls. And so had a notary come to the house, we signed the documents, they overnighted them, and a few days later, we closed on the house. So on the day of the closing, I kept checking uh, our bank account on my phone uh, to see when the money would be wired into our account. And uh, within a few hours after closing, it, it appeared in the account. I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> that money was credited to us, right? It was deposited into our account. According to Paul, that's what happened to Abraham. Abraham wasn't saved by depositing his own good works, even though he did do a lot of good things. No, he was saved by grace when he trusted God. His faith was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. Paul is saying that Abraham was saved exactly the same way that we are, by God's grace, not through our works. That's the way God works. We come to God by grace, and we become like God by grace. So back to the Bible and the people in the Bible. The Bible is not a book full of heroes that we should work hard to be like. It's a book filled with messed up, broken people who were transformed and used by God by his grace. The hero of the Bible is the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Abraham and every other person we might think of as a hero of the faith is actually a recipient of God's grace. They didn't try harder. They let go. They didn't pull themselves up by their bootstraps and come up with a couch to 5K program for spiritual growth. They learned to depend on God. They realized that they never wanted to be that branch that is cut off from the vine. You know the one that it looks alive for a while, but literally starts dying the moment it's cut from the vine. This completely changes the way that we read the Bible. Instead of seeing these as people who were all that, we can see them as people who simply trusted God. They turned to him, they depended on him. Sometimes they left his presence, right? They ended up committing adultery, building a golden calf, ended up in exile, ended up in the belly of a whale. And God time and time and time again shows his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. But over and over and over, we see that life is found in his presence. So the images are all throughout the Bible. 
tree by a stream, a branch and a vine, a sheep and a shepherd. Life is found at the end of ourselves, at the foot of the cross, and in the presence of the Almighty. So verses 10 through 14 of our Galatians 3 passage today says, but those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. One of the phrases I like to say, I say it a lot, is um, it's not an either or, it's a both and. My wife teases me every time I say it, because I say it so many times. Oh, there it goes again. It's not an either or, it's a both and. But some things are an either or. Um, you're either married or you're not. You're either dead or you're alive, right? You can't be both dead and alive, unless you're a zombie, but those aren't real, right? The same is true with the Christian faith. You're either a Christ follower or you're not. You either relate to God by grace through faith or you don't relate to him at all. And Paul says, if you want to keep the law, you will have to do it perfectly. You will have to keep every law from your first breath of life to your last breath at death. James 2.10 says, for the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. The moment a person breaks the law, he or she falls under the judgment of God, which Paul calls the curse of the law. The law doesn't add anything to our salvation. It actually nullifies our righteousness and we become cursed. Why? Because none of us can perfectly fulfill all of the law, not even the best of us. So instead of establishing their perfect righteousness, the law places followers under penalty. As Paul says in Romans 6.23, the penalty is death, right? It's a good one to memorize. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. As I've said before, the Judaizers and all legalists ever since have picked and chosen what laws they would follow and ignored all the others. Because the law, the law is a complete unit of legislation. 
If we are to have righteousness from the law, we must keep every single commandment of the law absolutely perfectly. If we fail in even the smallest commandment, we become lawbreakers and we fall under its condemnation. Paul's point then is that everyone who fails to keep the law in its entirety lives under the shadow of God's curse and God's judgment. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. We're under a curse. The only way for that curse to be removed is through what Christ accomplished on the cross. Jesus became cursed in our place. He received our curse so that we could receive his blessing. Nothing else is necessary. True life begins with the cross. It begins when we hear the gospel message of what Christ did on the cross. And it continues on in the same way. We don't progress in our Christian life by pulling ourselves up by our own effort. We continue the same way that we began, through faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how we grow in the Christian life, not, not under our own steam, but through the Spirit-enabled working out of what Jesus did for us on the cross. So the way we grow is the same way that we became a Christian. We need to relearn the gospel every day. Again, Thomas Schreiner says, focusing on our sinfulness could depress us and discourage us. But God does not intend for us to live with a constant feeling of failure and condemnation. Our sin should drive us to the cross of Christ where the full payment was made for our sins. God's love, therefore, becomes exceedingly precious in the way we think and feel in our everyday lives. We acknowledge our sins daily, but we cling to the cross of Christ as the means by which we are forgiven. Hence, when Satan accuses us, we remind ourselves that we are free from all guilt and condemnation, not because we're so good, but because God is so loving and forgiving. So if we, want, if we don't want to be the rowboat, doing everything out of our own strength, but we want to be the sailboat, where we use our little trolling motor to position our boat to where the wind is, we learn how to unfurl the sails, harness the wind, learn how to tack, then what does that practically look like? So in the coming, coming weeks of this series, uh, we'll be addressing that. Also, as part of an overall discipleship track uh, we're working on building, uh, we will begin launching that this fall. Uh, one of the pieces of that is I plan to launch a class in three parts um, called Spiritual Formation. Spiritual Formation 1, 2, and 3. Um, I'll lead it this fall, but the plan is to keep doing it over and over, and I'll raise up more leaders who can then lead it. 
Um, but for this class, uh, we'll be using a three-book series by James Brian Smith, B-R-Y-A-N, James Brian Smith. Um, he was a student of Dallas Willard's and Richard Foster's. Um, the first book is called The Good and Beautiful God. The second is The Good and Beautiful Life. And the third is The Good and Beautiful Community. And uh, Dallas Willard said, and I quote, he said, this is the best practice I have seen in Christian spiritual formation. Uh, I have taken several groups through this material and I would say that it is absolutely transformative. Um, definitely for those who have struggled with being rowboats, learning how to sail. Uh, so this class will be part of an overall discipleship track that will include several other classes. Um, we'll start launching those classes this fall. It'll probably take about two to three years to get, to get them all up and running. Um, really, it is impossible to disciple a congregation through only the weekend message. Like, I see that happen in churches all the time. Like, that's their strategy, is just preach. It's like, no. It's like, you gotta have something more than that, right? That, and this is what I've been doing for the last 18 years, is building stuff like that. Um, the weekend really needs to be the entry point into which you start connecting people into an overall discipleship track, which includes classes and small groups, uh, various assessments, a one-on-one sit-down with a pastor that needs to be built in as well. Um, and a bunch of other things. We, we want to help you learn how to sail, not just row. We want to live the rest of our lives, like from this day forward, um, the way we started, through a continual trust and dependence on the Holy Spirit. So it is my prayer that you would learn the beauty and the awe and the wonder of learning to sail under the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you say your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You say you're the vine and we're the branches. Your word says that we're like trees planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf doesn't wither. Lord, help us to walk this out. Where we are fully rooted in you, where we are transformed through your presence. Help us learn to live a life where we we give up control and we are led and empowered by you, Holy Spirit. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.